Blog Talk Radio. October 25th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from an individualist perspective. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and welcome to those of you who are joining me over here in the Blog Talk Radio chat room. If you run over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, you'll see the title of today's show. I'm doing another reprise, and this is just part of you know, kind of how I'm coming at the different things that I want to talk about that you get to experience with me. Pain, Danger, and Enemies. That's the reprise. I guess I haven't done that title since December 2015. So it seems pretty appropriate. The thing that came to mind for me was, you know, having immersed myself in this whole Weinstein and the Me Too and and everything like that, that I really do want to wrap up discussion of it today. I mean, obviously something new might come up and we might want to revisit, but any significant discussion of that topic we're going to finish up with today. I think I've said the things that I can provide a value about this topic, except for going through some of my survey that I told you guys about. We're going to go through some of the actual, uh, you know, the qualitative responses. The quantitative aspect of my survey. I don't know how valuable it is because it's very limited. I've got a very limited number of respondents, you know, on the scale of the typical opinion poll and everything. I've got a link to a story that includes statistics that are probably more objective than what I have. Uh, I think the thing that's interesting in the responses that I have is when the respondents talk about reasons for either going to the police or not, usually not going to the police. Most people don't go to the police. Um, For either participating in Me Too on social media or not, and the reasons and for naming names or for not, those are the things that are really interesting about it. So we'll look at that. We'll also look at this story from Slate that Tom Jones, a listener, sent to me. So thanks for sending that. Uh, It's called When Men Are Raped. And the rape or sexual assault of men is apparently more common than I thought, uh, certainly. And all of this, I mean, you know, what, what's the upshot? The upshot of this is that sexual assault, people using force to, um, you know, basically force onto somebody sexual contact with them. It's just way too common in our culture. It, it's, it's a terrible thing. And, Every so often, it's good to look at this and, you know, just keep aware of what you can do in your sphere of influence to make this something that is less common. You know, if you know 
uh, I mean, both. And again, I'm not, I, you know, I, I, I fall into this idea that women are more likely, and I think women are still more likely to be overpowered in, in certain ways and things like that. I would say that men as children are perhaps just as often victims. And actually, that's another whole sphere of the Weinstein thing that people are talking about. Now they're saying the next phase is to talk about sexual assault of young boys in Hollywood, that this goes on as well. Um, And of course, we've heard about the Catholic Church. And oh, I mean, it's horrible. I would say maybe that males are more likely as children than as adults, right? Because once you have an adult male, you have somebody who's more likely to be able to overpower anybody who would try to assault them. And and as I've talked about in the past, in terms of adult women, you uh, have this strength disparity with men and stuff that I think makes you more vulnerable. But anyway, we will go back through some of this and then we're going to set it aside because it's just a horrible topic. And again, the title of this show is inspired by this quotation of Rand that came to mind as I was going through this, what I would call miasma. Miasma is this great term that I learned from my grandmother, miasma. Rand's quote is, never think of pain or danger or enemies a moment longer than is necessary to fight them. And so whenever you're looking at something horrible like this, it's obviously necessary to look at these things for a while And if there's something that's bad that's happened in your own life, you have to revisit it every so often, take a look at it and say, okay, what can I learn from it given whatever new knowledge that I've, you know, or some new thing that's come up? Yeah, okay, revisit. But then once you've done everything that you know that you can do about that thing at that particular time, then you say, okay, set it aside. Don't continue to focus or or ruminate on it because there's there's no point and it just brings you down rand was of the opinion that evil is metaphysically insignificant and you know this is this is part of that approach for her which is that if you need to fight them if there's something that you need to do and you need to think of it or focus on it in order to fight it appropriately okay fine but other than that not so much now the other topic in connection with this that I was thinking about this morning is Trump. You know, I, I go back at, and you know, I've been tweeting against Trump and I think it's important to speak back to Trump and not let him have everybody around him think he's just the most fabulous person in the world. If you call him on his errors, we've got to call Trump on his errors. And this is true. As I've said in the past, whether you think, Trump is actually good for the country. It's still the right thing to call him on his errors. But, you know, particularly also if you reject him, you call him on his errors. So this is good to do. However, sometimes you just look at his Twitter feed in the morning and you think, A, this is just too easy because he just keeps doing the same stuff over and over again. And then B, it's just you absorb yourself in that. You focus too much on this guy when there's only so much that you can do about him directly in in that sort of form. So this quotation came to mind for me in connection with that whole thing with, with Trump as well. What's interesting is that I was just about to 
sort of step back from the whole Trump and whatever politicians he's fighting with and stuff. Because yesterday it was Corker, right? And Corker put some criticisms out there in the media. It was like, yeah, when Trump tweets about the 401k being off the table, you know, that they can't take that away or they can't put caps of contributions to 401k. When he does that, Corker is complaining, Trump interferes with the negotiation process that goes on in Congress when they're going to, quote, pay for the tax cuts. You know, it's it's just a mess, right? It's a total mess. Now, Corker probably has a point. And so should Trump be going out there and tweeting the way that he does? Of course, when I look at the 401k tweet for Trump, the thing that I look at is that he doesn't have any principled argument for any of his policies at all. It's all about what's popular and what, quote, works, what's his standard of works, who knows, right? He doesn't have any principles. Um, But, you know, yeah, okay, so Corker's giving this criticism. And then the thing that I focus on is that when Trump is going to respond to Corker's criticism about how legislation gets done in, um, you know, in Washington, Trump does this whole ad hominem stuff. He doesn't address anything on the merits at all. That's what struck me yesterday. So there I go, you know, and I'm, I'm on, for, for whatever reason, I don't know why I thought of this, but I thought of the song Let It Be and that how you could, um, you know, repurpose the lyrics, find myself in times of trouble, and then... Uh, go on and talk about what Trump does when he finds himself in times of trouble. When I find myself in times of trouble, ad hominem comes to me, shifting blame less tax cuts will not be. And this is what I see Trump is doing, right? He's shifting the blame over to Corker, Corker, and then the other senator who's been criticizing him is Flake. And these guys maybe won't vote or support the tax cuts. And in the Senate, they need every last vote or it's just not going to happen. And so what does Trump want to do? He wants to shift the blame to these guys. It certainly can't be Trump's fault if the tax cuts don't happen. We know that he's not going to take the blame for it. It's got to be somebody else's. So anyway, so I do this. And I have fun doing it. And I think it's clever and everything else. But I, I don't know. You go and you look at my... Twitter feed and stuff. Yeah, people like it, but they don't retweet it that much. Maybe my sense of humor is just too obscure for people or whatever. I don't I don't know. So, you know, you think, okay, I'm spending all this time focusing on answering this guy. This this I would still do just cuz I thought it was a lot of fun. I was I was getting a good laugh out of it at 6 in the morning or whenever I was doing it. But you know, how much time do you spend focusing on this guy? who is icky, you just, you just don't want it. So the, you know, again, this is what I was thinking about. Now, let me tell you the danger though, right? This is the problem. Um, so I'm thinking, okay, you know, the whole thing with flake this morning, he's back with the ad hominems on flake. And like I said, I had looked at what Corker was saying. Corker is talking about the legislative process and whatever. It turns out that the stuff that flake is saying is a lot, more, I was going to say more fundamental. Apparently you can't say that something's more fundamental. What Flake is saying is fundamental, right? About just the the state of politics and politicians in Washington right now. And I mean, he makes really, really, you know, criticisms that go to the core of what Trump is about. And he talks about principles and, you know, what a governing philosophy is and isn't and everything. So he, 
much better than corker. So, so this is the danger of this, right? When I say, okay, you know, focus on pain or danger and enemies don't do it a moment longer. You've got to really kind of have that consistent amount of focus so that you don't miss the flakes of the world because you think, okay, well, the whole stuff with Corker, yeah, I can criticize Trump for ad hominem, but it's not like Corker saying anything earth shattering. Flake is saying some stuff that's just pretty much earth shattering here. And wouldn't it be horrible if I had just turned away completely and not looked at what this exchange, this particular exchange was about, because then I would have missed out on flake. So, you know, I had a friend who was like, you know, oh, you can talk about flake. Well, what about flake? I go, I look at flake. Oh, okay. There's, there's something here. And so I've got a little bit about him, flake himself saying enough about politics, right? He's figuring out where he can best pursue his values, do the things that he wants to do. And he's decided that he cannot do that while he is going to seek re-election. So he's decided already his term doesn't end until January of 2019. He's already decided he's not going to seek re-election because he wants to be able to do everything that he does in the Senate according to his conscience. Bravo. Um, That is awesome. So it's exactly kind of along the lines of of what I want. So I've got a couple other things in the program notes. If there's any of this that you want to talk about, the number where you call me is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. You can also participate here in the Blog Talk Radio chat room. Just Jean is reminding me of one of the things that I was noticing in the whole Corker and, um, you know, and Trump exchange. She writes, yeah, tax cuts need to be quote unquote paid for by spending reductions. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, Josh in the chat room says your responses to tweets are complicated. You know, your audience, Trump and people like that say things in 140 characters. And I've said, okay, but Josh, I say a hell of a lot in 140 characters. That's the thing that I love is just figuring out how to say, look how much I said. And I repurposed song lyrics in there. I thought that was awesome. I was really excited about it. And maybe I'm just entertaining myself and the few people. And and that's in a way how I feel about this show, right? This show does not have a huge audience, but there is a certain core listenership who enjoys going through the events of the day from the perspective that I have, which, you know, it's an amalgam, of course, of the philosophy that a lot of us share, that, you know, at least a a general idea of limited government and that selfishness and the pursuit of happiness is is a good thing. And, you know, we don't necessarily agree on every single thing. So we have that philosophical background. But then, of course, I'm bringing you little tidbits from my own perspective. I'm going to throw in some Duran Duran today just to have a little bit of fun with this towards the end of the show. So there's a core of people who enjoy this and who come along with me. I enjoy doing it and there's a place for it. You know, the question is how, you know, what, what are the goals for something like this? What's the goal for tweeting like that? Am I trying to achieve a huge audience on Twitter or am I trying to actually say something worthwhile and have a little bit of fun doing it. And that's for me, it's the latter. I'm going to try to say something worthwhile, have a little bit of fun doing it. You know, it's a, it's a balance. Yeah. I'd like a bigger audience. I, you know, I'd like more, but Twitter's getting to be a weird place. You know, there's a lot of people who enjoy my stuff 
and they'll just like it. They won't retweet it. And maybe it's because they don't want to offend their audience or whatever. You know, they have their Trump supporting friends or whatever. And I criticize Trump all the time. Twitter, Twitter is, is, I think a lot of people just like to tweet out there and not necessarily pay attention to other things or, or, you know, promote other people or anything like that. I've seen a lot of that. There's a number of people like that. They'll, they'll like things all the time and they'll never retweet. My audience at Twitter is never going to get any bigger unless people actually retweet the stuff because it's got to spread out to people who are not my followers. And it, it just doesn't happen on, on Twitter that much anymore. So that's life. But what am I doing? I'm speaking to Trump and, and maybe, some people are, are seeing that. There's probably other people who are in that feed of people who answer Trump that are thinking, yeah, okay, here's somebody else joining in the in the principal denunciation. I see, like I say, flake today, and and we, you know, you're not going to stop doing it as long as we're able to do it. And then the question is, how much of your time and focus do you give these sorts of things? That's the theme that we're revisiting today on this show. Uh, Dominique in the chat room says, wasn't Corker instrumental in the Obama-Iran deal? Probably he was. And so if he was, and that's one of the things that he's responsible for, okay, fine, criticism on that. But it is ad hominem to use that as a refutation of the criticisms that Corker's making about Trump tweeting about the tax stuff. Trump never answered Corker's criticism on the substance. It was just this ad hominem. Oh, Corker, he couldn't get reelected, and he was part of the Iran deal, and the blah, 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 blah. Um, I want a substance. Why can't he talk about why he thought it was good for him to tell people that the 401k stays? Why not just hit the substance of that? Say, no, I was right in tweeting what I did about the 401ks and here's why. And if you guys can't get it done in Congress or whatever, but that was what I was speaking to. So yeah, instrumental in the Randy, sure, fine, whatever. It's not relevant to the substance of Corker's complaints. And this is the sort of thing that we do need to call Trump on. It does matter that he commits logical fallacies all day long on that Twitter feed in trying to score political points. It's logical fallacies that he's committing. And our political discourse, our discourse in the culture about anything is going to be debased if we don't check those things. That's the sort of thing that I'm getting at. Um, so if you do want to call in, talk about these things, then uh, call the number 760-888-5817. Hit one if you want to actually talk and, and you're not just listening. So let me go over, like I said, I'm going to go through some of the responses that I got in the survey. Thanks to those people who did fill out the survey. I said for only women to do it, but maybe I should have opened it up to men as well. A, because I didn't use up all of my hundred respondents even. You know, I wasn't eager to send it out completely publicly and open it to everybody at the same time, how can I get something that's scientifically, statistically accurate without doing that? So the statistics that I have, I don't know how objective they are, how useful they really are. It seemed that, you know, no, from, from like 40 responses on up, no matter how many more responses that I got, the percentage of respondents who said that, yes, someone had used force sometimes in their life to have 
sexual contact with them, that remained at about 56%, which is high. But I think it is true that in our culture today, the you know prevalence of people using force to try to have sexual contact with either other adults or you know even worse minors it's it's alarmingly high and it's it's horrible and it's something that needs to be addressed and you know exactly how we're going to address it I'm going to have to leave unfortunately to psychologists so then I was curious how many of those people go to the police and of the ones that responded, I said, if you answered yes to the first question, did you go to the police? I've got a 70% no on that. And I asked people to say, you know, why they either did or didn't go to the police. And um, I'll just give you a rundown of the types of answers that I got about either going or not going to the police. One says, I was in school, went to the administration. Another says, I was 12. It was the father of kids I babysat for on the drive home. My mother didn't want to believe me. She arranged for the wife to pick me up and take me home, but she never should have made me go back. The family only asked me to babysit one more time. I think my mom told the wife what happened without saying who the man was. (sighs) Um, These horrible situations, especially if you're a kid, you have no power. The first one says, oh, I had said no. Okay, that's fine. Uh, this one says, I reported it anonymously because I knew they wouldn't catch him based off my report, but saw that someone who seemed like the same guy had been sent to jail for it already and was probably doing it again now that he was out. This woman says, I was date raped twice, and I was confused by the situation and very young at the time. I didn't want my parents to know. I was also molested by a family member, and the family made it clear that they wanted it to be a personal matter and not involve the police. Uh, This one says, no, because I was able to escape anything serious from happening, i.e. rape. Yeah, and, you know, again, it's, it's hard to tell people exactly how they should respond to something like this. Uh, Another one says, it was very pushy harassment that could have escalated, but I shut it down just fine on my own. So I guess you felt you didn't need the police. Now I've got more responses on this additional question. I had to uh, modify it a little bit through to be able to get the qualitative responses that I wanted. So I added additional questions for the qualitative component. One said, I didn't think it would be taken like it was a serious offense. One said... I was a child and bribed not to talk. This one says, he was my sober friend. I was drunk and it was all very embarrassing. It didn't seem like a big enough deal because it wasn't rape but sexual assault. Later I saw him try to take advantage of other girls and I stepped in. We are certainly no longer friends, but sometimes I worry he has done worse to others. So it sounds like this one is regretting maybe not going forward. Another one, I still feel a lot of guilt. I was passed out drunk. If I hadn't been, I'm confident I would not have been overpowered. I also didn't want to be viewed as a victim, right? That's part of it. You say, okay, I decided to drink this alcohol. You know, unless you were roofied, somebody slipped you some drugs or something. You decided to drink the alcohol and you got yourself in a situation maybe where you drank more and more. And so you feel partly 
responsible afterwards. You know, you, you wouldn't have been able to be overpowered if you hadn't been so drunk and stuff. So there's these mixed feelings that make people not want to go to the police. Felt too ashamed to report, says another. Another says, I'm not sure how to answer why. I felt something was very, very wrong with what happened, and I felt the person was a predator. Doesn't really have an answer. Still working it out in her head, it sounds like. I went to the police, says another, because I wanted him caught and prosecuted. Another says, was in shock. Another, just one word, context. So even in this anonymous survey, doesn't feel, I guess, comfortable providing more than that. Another one. He tried to kiss me and I was able to get away, but was really shocked at the amount of physical force used. I just made sure other women knew about it and that we all avoided him in the future. Another one. I was a teen. The man really invasively groped me from behind and then disappeared into the mall. And by the time the surprise slash stun wore off and I was really angry, I could not have found the person if I tried. In another case, when a man followed me around... I was jogging and he was in a car and kept getting out and exposing himself. It was actually kind of comical because it was so weird, pathetic. She says, I did go to the police with a license plate number and a description. Second incident, she says, didn't happen in the States. Another respondent, I was 14. I didn't realize that I was raped until I was older. I said yes to sex. Then within a few minutes, I asked him to stop. It took three times of me asking him to stop saying, please stop the third time for him to stop and get off of me. I thought it was my fault for, quote, leading him on. So one of those very mixed situations. Too young to consent, though, at 14, right? Another one says, not really illegal. I'm not sure exactly what was meant by that one. Another respondent, I was young and stupid, and I just figured it was my fault for putting myself in a bad situation. Another respondent, it was someone I knew. I'd been out with him and others that night drinking. I was not drunk. I told one of the women who's been with us, and she didn't believe me. In fact, she accused me of lying to keep her from dating him. She liked him and refused to believe me and called to tell him, and he lied and denied it and then asked out my friend. I then knew there would be two people who would tell the police I was lying, and I didn't want to go through with it. I wasn't physically hurt, just scared and shocked. Shocked, I had punched him to get away. He had pinned me in the passenger seat of his car. And I didn't want to be accused of assault and get into the he said, she said situation. Another one, I didn't feel that they would believe me, listen, care, and I was doubting myself in my experience, minimizing it. Another one, I was in second grade. My school notified the authorities. Another one says I blame myself. Another one, too young to understand what happened. Another, I was a child, embarrassed, confused, and didn't understand how to communicate about it. There were two separate perpetrators. One, a family member with unlimited access and authority over me. Another, a stranger on an airplane flight when I was 11 and flying alone. It's horrible. Um, Last one of this question. Respondent says, it was up to my mom. In part, my mom was a coward about things like this, but also it was 1965. It might have been worse for me if the police had been involved. 
That's horrible to say. I mean, at least you say, well, maybe today if the police are involved, especially post-Weinstein, that you would be listened to more. So then I talk about, you know, are you planning to do the Me Too on social media? Yes or no. So what do people say about that? One says, I haven't and I wasn't going to, but if I thought it would actually help, maybe I would. The thing is that if you post without identifying the perp, you implicate every innocent man you've ever met. Now, I don't know that that's true, that if you, I don't, I don't think there's this, if you, if you post, you have to say who it is, otherwise you implicate everybody. Now, it might be a certain situation where the, you know, the, the number of people, like you don't want to limit the number of people to some small number where you're going to start getting towards particularized suspicion without, you know, providing more some kind of evidence or proof or things like that, because you don't want to malign people's character without providing a full case. Yes. But at the same time, you can't say, oh, well, you can't just say me too. And then every innocent man you've ever met is implicated. I mean, you've met a whole lot of men, I assume, in your life. So there's so many of them that there's no particularized suspicion about any of them, right? So, you know, we talk about bulk surveillance in our our country. And one of the complaints is that there's no particularized suspicion before the government starts collecting your data. You know, you've met so many men in your life. I don't don't think that that's the case. I don't think that you're implicating if you – don't share all of your details. Another one says, not sure. It feels like a lot of vulnerable exposure. I think raising awareness is important, but don't want to be harmed again by disclosing or sanctioning anti-male tribal thinking. Yes, and that is one of the things that I've talked about. The danger of the Me Too is that people will dismiss men entirely or you know that men are are horrible and that men who like sex are horrible i've got an article you know talking about that in in a minute you don't want to have that as well the other thing is you know again it's it's going through this this whole idea of focusing on pain or danger or enemies a moment longer it's necessary to fight them some people might say look you know i can read the weinstein article and just kind of revisit the topic a little bit and then kind of put it on the shelf. I don't want to get involved in a whole thing for my own health. I mean, you have to decide for your own self what you think would be important to do at this particular juncture to get over whatever happened to you in the past. It might be posting a Me Too. It might be posting a Me Too with more of a story or not or whatever. You know, again, if you've been the victim of a crime, of an initiation of force like this, I think you should be given maximum leeway in terms of figuring out how it's best for you to deal with it. So, yeah, if it feels like a lot of vulnerable exposure, then I understand, you know, don't, don't do it. Uh, One person says, I did post a me too. I explained that I'd been sexually assaulted by a family member on a date and I was groped by a boss. Now here's the thing, right? If you say, okay, well, I was groped by a boss. Now, if you have, a limited employment history, then you do start having a kind of narrow group of people who might fall under suspicion. And then you might want to provide more details and things like that. But today it's not necessarily common for people to have a very short employment history as, you know, we go on, we change jobs and employers all the time. So perhaps, 
you know, if you say I was groped by a boss once, you've had a number of employers and, and it doesn't implicate even a small group. Another one says, I would not post on social media. I was never viciously attacked. I woke up to someone touching me, knocked in his knocked him in his face, and that was that. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Another one says, because I think all those things are silly. I'm not a joiner, and it's not anybody's business but my own if I am a Me Too, Charlie Hebdo, or Jesus, or whatever. Uh, Charlie Hebdo for Jesus, or whatever. There's a few things in here. The, the I'm not a joiner idea, sometimes there are groups that actually do further your values. And they might be things that you want to join at certain times. But, again, I can understand if somebody doesn't want to post something like this because it's just too private and they don't feel like sharing something like this. Um, you know, if you don't want to share that you're for Jesus or, you know, you work for Charlie Hebdo or whatever it is. But it, it's not silly. You know, I think that there's a range of reasonable choices that people can make with respect to something like this. I do think because Me Too has been somewhat polluted that if you were going to post, you might put a certain disclaimer, say, I don't mean to malign men. I don't mean to malign, you know, sex. I don't I'm not asking, for example, that, um, you know, on college campuses, we're going to have those rules about, you know, at each stage when you're involved with a guy, then they have to keep asking and take all the fun out of sex and all the different things that happen when people overreact to something like this. At the same time, there's a value there and you don't want to get rid of that value. Okay. So here's some more responses as to participation in the me too. Another one says I've been inspired by the courage of other women doing it. Another one says, I do not want to share my experience on social media. You know, again, perfectly valid. Another one says, it's too personal for my social media followers. I would never want to be asked to elaborate. That's the thing, right? You would have to, I mean, suppose you know that you only want to say me too, and you don't want to elaborate about it. Maybe you want to, I mean, you probably have to give a little bit of, you know, me too, and that by that I mean, actual sexual assault, not just harassment. You might want to at least specify that much because this, the tag has been used for both. So maybe you'd want to say that, but then be firm in that you don't want to elaborate. You could be asked to elaborate and say, no, you know, I'm firm in the idea that I don't need to elaborate in this context. This is what I feel comfortable doing. I'm, you know, coming forward for this reason, whatever it, but that I understand that could be a tough thing to do that if somebody asked you to elaborate, you might be tempted to, and maybe therefore you're not ready to, to post about it. Another one says, I'm not ready to address it with people who may see the post. Yeah. And then, and that's the other thing too, right? Maybe on, you know, Facebook, maybe the person's not going to ask you to elaborate on the thread itself but then you're going to start getting private messages and stuff and you're going to feel more pressure. Well, maybe in a private message I could start responding and you don't want to get sucked into it that much. You don't want to focus on it that much. You want to, you know, make your statement and that's it. I can understand. Another one says, I don't like furthering a narrative that women are victims any more than men are. Somehow me too seems to be about supporting women and not men. I don't think it necessarily is. And in fact, I saw, um, uh, a post from a man on social media today just put me too and that's it and 
people just offered, you know, sympathy without asking him for details or anything. And I thought that was really cool. I think that within certain communities, people have the sense to just give the people their space and, you know, give them the sympathy and then just leave it alone. You know, let it be what the, what the person wants it to be. Another one says, I think the Me Too movement harms those, harms those that have actually been raped or sexually assaulted or sexually coerced by lumping the he said something awful to me or he made me feel uncomfortable discredit diminishes the real problem of sexual assault. And that, yes, that is a concern, right? That, that Me Too is maybe polluting everything. Another one said already did. Another one just said context again. Probably the same one who said context in the earlier one. This one said, I feel something is off about Me Too. It feels too much like a desire to embrace being a victim. Also, people are using it for things that are harmless, like catcalling. Lastly, there are many good men, and it is not going to be effective with the men who are predator types. No, it's it's not going to be effective with the men who are predator types. Probably not. I mean, there maybe are some people who are open to improvement and change and it might get to them. Right. But people who are these hardened predator types, you know, like Weinstein going to one week of outpatient or whatever, and he's suddenly cured. No, it's not, it's not going to, but I think more it is for the people who can do something about this either to lessen the chance that they become a victim themselves, right? So that they're aware of the prevalence of the problem and, and, you know, to not do things like get drunk with people that you don't know that you can trust and things like this. And maybe just not get too drunk. Um, You know, imagine that. Just don't don't get totally drunk to where, you know, you're not going to remember whatever it is that you did and stuff like that. What a concept. Um, But the other things are also the importance of educating kids about, you know, caution and not becoming a victim, uh, in having them be able to talk about anything that might happen to them or attempts of things that might happen to them, right, so that you can help address whatever's going on with kids. Um, And also, of course, talk to kids about the propriety of the way, you know, the way that we treat other human beings properly and prevent future predators from happening to the extent that you can. Um, it's, it's just good to have some awareness of the problem. Another one says, I think the Me Too thing conflates too many things and thus it will only cloud thinking about the issue and polarize people with some thinking it confirms their fears of a rape epidemic and others assuming that most of those reporting cat calls are something along those lines and that it's just manufactured outrage. I just can't imagine it having any value. I sure hope it hasn't been dismissed entirely. I think there's some real value there. Another one says, I was 14. I didn't realize I was raped till I was older. Um, okay, this one, oh, said it was my fault. Okay, so that was just a cut and paste from the earlier response. Another one seemed good. Another one, I don't want to upset my husband. Ooh, that's a hard one. You could understand, but wow. Um, Another one, I support the campaign, but didn't want to get into it on my wall. Didn't want people assuming I was full of crap and playing victim for virtue signaling purposes. Yeah, and that's part of the danger in certain circles, like I said. 
The connotations go beyond the intent into a political statement I don't want to make. Okay. Uh, I thought it would be good to show others how prevalent it is. Yes. I feel that social media campaigns are dumb. Some of them are. Some of them really are. Just for example, this morning, it's Wednesday, right? And you go on Twitter and there's a hashtag thing that they do on Wednesdays called Wisdom Wednesdays. And the idea is you're supposed to be sharing, I guess, some sort of wisdom. And actually, I just thought of one that I should have tweeted out there. I've got, you know, this uh, high school English teacher, and he had this great saying, which would be fun and perfect for this. Life is one long reading test. How many times have you not read something correctly and then, you know, made some kind of error that cost you in one way or the other? Life is one long read. It was perfect. But you go out there and people have hijacked that Wisdom Wednesdays hashtag on Twitter. You just go look at it yourself. And it's just like ads for stuff and, I mean, not have nothing to do with the intent of it. The intent of it was for people to share wisdom, little, you know, uh, quotes or, um, you know, sayings and things that they've learned in their lives, old, you know, an old adage about something that has helped them in their lives. And that's not what it is anymore. So, yeah, some social media campaigns, they're hijacked by people who steer it entirely away from the original intent of it. Does that mean that a social media campaign can never serve a good purpose? I hope that that's not the case. You know, we'll talk about that with politics, too. It's uncomfortable. Another one says, I think it is unjust to say that a man I knew harassed me unless I am willing to say who it was. Saying that I was harassed without identifying the perp implicates every man I've ever known. Again, I don't agree with that because you've known a lot of men. And so it's a big enough group that I don't feel you've implicated any particular one. That's why, you know, for example, if they say, okay, well, we want to search, we want to get the Google search information for everybody in Cincinnati, Ohio, because we know that somebody in Cincinnati, Ohio did something illegal, whatever it was. That's not enough. There's just too many people. And Similarly, you've met too many men over the whole course of your life to implicate every man you've ever known because you come forward with a Me Too. At least that's my view. So if that's the thing that would stop you, I wouldn't do that. There might be other things. Then maybe think about it, right? Because, again, I, I give a pile of leeway to people choosing how they want to deal with this. Uh, okay. The whole Me Too thing creeps me out, etc. Um, okay, that was something that we've seen before. So then the last one is, would you name names? Would you name names? Why or why not? And I'm thinking the answers are going to be, uh, one just said, hell no, that they wouldn't name names. Okay, I don't know why. I, I'm interested in the why. Another one says, if I were to post, I would not include names. I would out, excuse me, it would out my college behavior to my family. Another uh, second reason I haven't had contact since I broke up with him over 11 years ago. I don't know if he has matured since then, and I have no reason to ruin his life. Yeah, you might think that. You might think, well, this person, you know, not like Weinstein. Weinstein had this long-standing pattern of behavior. So you know, go, go right forward with that because he's been doing it for decades, right? But in a personal situation where you don't know what that person's been up to in their life, you have no reason to think that they're still doing those things. They might have done you know, this once or twice and stupid thing in college and maybe they've reformed. Yeah, you don't have a reason. So I understand that. Uh, another one. I did discuss the details about the family member and explained it was my grandfather who is now dead. 
I didn't name the two people that I was date raped by because I was 13 at the time and so were they. It was over 40 years ago and I don't remember the boss's full name. Okay, so there's that. Um, Another one just says depends. Another one says if I needed to warn someone about them. Now, you don't have to go social media generally, right, to warn. You could go personal if you knew, you know, who you needed to warn. Uh, The other one, uh, ha, of course I would. People deserve their character to be exposed, and when committee an evil act, they don't deserve respect of privacy for their acts committed. Now, that's one aspect, right, is does the person deserve privacy if they've committed this horrible act? If you can come forward with adequate evidence and you feel comfortable, yes, then do it. Um, but it's there's other things to consider beyond just that. You know, does somebody deserve it? And you could, you know, think what goes into, you know, does this person deserve it now? And um, all of that stuff. There's there's a lot of reasons to look at here. A uh, long time gone and no need for libel ac- accusations to fly around, says another. And then finally, we've got this last chunk of comments about naming names. Doesn't seem fair to them. Should go through proper channels. Now, the proper channels will what be the police. I don't think you necessarily have to go to the police. But as I said, if you're going to come forward and name names, I believe you should have a really good case basically equivalent of what you would have if you were going to the police. Another one, it was a family member who is now dead. Yeah, so maybe you think, you know, there's nobody who's potentially in danger from this person anymore and, you know, et cetera. Another one, I believe it would be too inflammatory for my situation. It was years ago, and I've come to terms with the fact that this person is a creep. Yeah, so it doesn't serve your purposes to come forward maybe. I no longer have proof against the person who assaulted me. Okay, so that's a good. Another one says, happened a long time ago and we both have families now. Okay, so maybe you think that that person may have reformed. Another one, I don't believe public shaming creates social good for any group of people. I think to shame derives, excuse me, I I think uh, shame drives predatory behavior rather than preventing it. I mean, one thing, if, if, you know, someone like Weinstein is publicly shamed, there's not going to be any woman who is going to agree to go anywhere alone with him anymore. So in that sense, it prevents it in the sense of it prevents somebody else from being a victim. It doesn't necessarily mean that Weinstein is going to be helped in any way. But what's the goal now is to keep people away from him. That would be it. Another one says won't help. Yeah, and if you believe it won't help anything, you or anybody else in the circumstances, I understand. Uh, good to warn others, perhaps perhaps bring a bad person to justice. Sure, you know, if you determine on balance. Too long ago in context, says another. Another says, if I wanted people to know that a certain person was dangerous, I would not shy away from using names. Another one says, this is not what I use social media for. I can only imagine doing it if I'd gone to the police and felt they weren't willing to help. Right, and that might be, you say, okay, well, the police is the proper channels for this, and if only if I can't get that, would I go public? Another one says, it's been 28 years. What good does it do now? He probably doesn't even remember. I do. Another says, does not feel safe. Another one says, don't even know names. Another says, it was 20 years ago. He's probably married and has kids. He failed at raping me because I defended myself. And even when he went out with my former friend, he didn't assault her. He just dumped her as soon as she had served her purpose says, I don't see the point now. No one will believe me anyway. I don't know his name. If I did, I would, says another. 
Another says, I wouldn't name names because it could open me up to liability. If I were assaulted, I would go to the police and have the legal system take care of it. Another one says, to keep others from being forced into something they didn't want. So they they would go forward. Another one says, it was a family member, and although I did tell my mom at the time, she told me it was my fault because he is who he is. Another one says, so many on my friends list know this person, I'd feel bad. Okay. Another one says, I was a child and the abuser was a child that was being abused at home and was mimicking behavior. Okay, so you think that that um, person was not really responsible for behavior. And that, you know, again, if you make that judgment, either maybe they weren't responsible at the time or it was a fleeting thing and you think they've reformed and stuff, what, you know, what's the purpose of doing that? Um, that would clear all the innocent parties if you did it. Yeah, so maybe if you think, but again, I don't think that by not naming a name that you implicate every single innocent guy you've ever met in your life. I don't, I don't believe that's true. I don't think you have to come forward with a name, but if you do have some evidence, have a story to to back it up. Uh, Next one. I think it's wrong to make social media public accusations unless you're willing to back them up by attempting to prove a criminal or civil case, which I'm not. I would privately warn possible victims and their guardians if my perpetrator was still alive. And I did once I reached adulthood until he died. Yeah. And I think that's a perfectly valid uh, approach, a good way to do it. Another one says, first, I wouldn't post Me Too in the first place, but trying to shame people in public seems like a really stupid idea. Such matters should be handled privately. If other people need to be warned about a serious predator, social media doesn't seem like the right place to me. Okay. And, You know, I think that that's a valid choice to make as well. Um, You know, unless, for instance, it's something like Weinstein where you say, okay, you want to go public and get it out there to make a point about warning anybody ever from going near him at any point. You don't know necessarily the pertinent people that you need to warn. That would be the purpose of putting something out there publicly in, in general. Okay, well, thanks everyone who responded to this. As you can see, there are a lot of different reasons that people either choose to go to the police, come forward or not. And to me, at least, these different responses seem reasonable. I don't know what people are saying here in the chat room. I've got a call that I'm going to go ahead and grab right now. Actually, you know what? I'm way behind. I'm going to take a little music. Now I'll get the call. Okay, I'm back. And again, thanks to everyone who responded to my little survey. It was interesting to see the variety of reasons that people didn't feel like they wanted to go to the police. They do or don't want to participate in the Me Too campaign on social media. I'm going to go ahead and grab a call right now. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hi, Amy. Uh, John Kenny, Carson City. Hi. Hi. Is it about the Me Too? Yes. I'm yeah, here. yeah. Just a couple of quick comments. Um, you know the comedian Louis C.K. Have you ever seen him? Yes. Oh, yeah. I really uh, like him. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's got a routine on this subject. I can't remember what his conclusion was, but it's basically women never do anything that's more dangerous to their life and health than go out with a man. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you think about it, it, it's deadly when you say, yeah, I'll go out with you or, you know, especially blind date or something or I'll get in a car with you. Mm-hmm. There's nothing they do that's more dangerous than that. And I think Louis C.K. is, you know, admiring this. I guess, uh, you know, how could you have the guts to do such a thing? Right. You, know? you might want right. to uh, find that on YouTube. Uh, maybe okay. Post it. It's, you know, it's 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 an amusing little thing. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that? you know, again, it it goes it goes back to that fundamental truth, which is that you can take a woman who, you know, statistically among women is quite strong. And she can still be overpowered by a man who statistically among men is quite, you know, sort of weak or whatever, not particularly strong. And that's a scary thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's it. That's yeah. But at this, at the same time, and I'm going to go into, you know, in a minute, I've got Camille Paglia's interview about Hugh Hefner and, you know, she talks about, and this is one of the things, this whole Weinstein thing is one of the things that poses a risk of removing sort of the awesome enjoyment of sex from life, right? So if a woman decided, oh, she's never going to go out on a date with a man or anything, what what would life be like, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what? So what do you do? I guess you know if 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 you're a woman, as, as I said before, a don't get too impaired, right? You don't want to be drinking a whole pile, especially if you're with somebody that you don't know well enough to trust. And then the other thing is to learn some sort of self-defense techniques, so that you're not counting right. merely on your physical strength; that you're counting on other things to, you know, in, in those circumstances, because you don't want to rob life of one of the awesome aspects of it, which is enjoying a good sexual relationship with, you know, it could be same sex, opposite sex, whatever, but that it's, it's a tremendous value. And this is something that Paglia talks about in connection with Hefner in this interview. So yeah, it is, it, it, you know, it, it is a danger and it, it, these things do take quite a bit of bravery, but the potential payoff is, I think, the reason that women will continue to do it. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, secondly, um, young men, boys, um, should learn how to be gentlemen. And one way is to watch all the old Cary Grant movies. Remember him? Mm-hmm. Cary Grant, the actor? Mm-hmm. I mean, now there was a gentleman. He, he, there's somebody that's not a slob, in the words of Michael Caine, the actor. He taught generations of young men how to be non-slobs, okay? <laughs> how, to, how, to, yes. how to deal back and forth with a woman. So I would recommend that for one thing. Okay. Isn't that a good? Excellent. Okay. Yeah, no, definitely. Okay. And did, did you have something else, another recommendation? Um, no, that was... Uh, that was the one. Oh, okay, so so oh, watching yeah, well, Cary Grant movies what, what, and watching what, what, watching the way he treats women, you think would be helpful? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Cary Grant or Humphrey Bogart, you know, they um, even uh, Jimmy Cagney a lot of times, except for that time where he uh, threw the grapefruit in the lady's face. That wasn't good. <laughs> Remember that scene? I don't. 
uh, he was at a breakfast table and he put a grapefruit in his wife's uh, face. You don't want that. But uh, generally, you know, the uh, uh, the old time movie stars were were gentlemen, and uh, you want to uh, do that. Now, um, I'm 66 years old now, and as I look back, probably in my early 20s, I probably did some in, inappropriate things like Christmas parties, for example. Now, there's a, look, I don't know if you know about it, but there's a lot of groping that goes on at Christmas parties, you know, in the coat room, under mm-hmm. all those furs and everything. Mm-hmm. So you probably, I don't know if it's still, what, what are we in, 27? I don't know if that still goes on, but uh, that's one thing. You, you don't want to get yourself in trouble uh, like that, right? Interesting. Okay. Yeah, so you're saying yeah. you're saying that that these things that have existed in the past as well. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah, I you know I I probably regret a couple of things. Uh, but anyway, now uh, from what I've, I've seen, if I'm on a relationship with a with a woman, I definitely will not force myself on. I would uh, go on enough dates that she definitely wants romance. She is giving all kinds of signals. Okay. Sure. Invite yeah, and, and that, that's the thing, right? So when, I, when I've when i talked about this in the past couple of shows, and like I said, I don't want to do it anymore after this show because I just feel like we belabor the point. But um, what you've got to look for, and, and it can be tough, right? Because the in these contexts, you know, you, you talk about it, it's kind of – it would be super boring if the guy says – is it okay if I kiss you now? Well, how about if I touch your shoulder, right? And you have to say yes, right? This this gets all the romance out of it. And this is one thing that Paglia talks about in the interview. Um, you know, the the rules that they have on campus, you know, for dating for the students okay. and stuff. It's 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 horrible. Have, it they, have, they, gone, all the have they gone to question have they gone to questionnaires yet? Yeah, you, know, you have to actually sign, you know, sign a piece you know, of paper that it's sign okay. Sign here, uh, <laughs> check here, check there. Um, yeah. So, you know, part of the part of the fun is this, you know, sort of risk taking, and you know, you don't necessarily know, but you try and stuff. Now, what you need to do is just have the idea that once it's been made abundantly clear that whatever advances you are making are not welcome, that you know you're not going to go further than that. And that's always my, you know, that's the standard. You don't want to take all the fun out of this, all the romance out of this, all the thrill out of this. But at the same time, you know, you say, okay, is the context clear? Is it, is it clear in this context that this woman is not at all interested and in that case, then no. Um, I, you know, I, I keep thinking about it. I might as well talk about it. So uh, people who have read The Fountainhead know that there's this, you know, thing with Dominique and, and Rourke where Rourke overpowers Dominique and supposedly she does it, but she wants it. And, and, you know, Rand would say it was very clear that Dominique did want, you know, Rourke to take her, but... Then the question is, do some people look at something like that and maybe particularly in you know the objectivist community, is somebody going to take that and say, okay, well, if a woman says no, it doesn't necessarily mean no, maybe she really does, and maybe the person is not very good at determining if the woman really means no by no and stuff. So yeah. in, in certain situations, it can 
get get a little bit dicey. And then the question is, do you, you know, you, you talk about, you said, John, maybe there's a couple things you sort of regret. My guess is that if a woman made it abundantly clear to you that no was no, then you back off. I mean, that's that. Maybe, you know, a, a little bit of like a harmless, you, you thought the woman might be interested in you, you know, touch her a little bit or something. But you, in that context, I don't think that that's anything bad, you know. Um, yeah. There's, there's, people take risks in this realm and there's got to be a certain amount of leeway for that. And then at the same time, we have to be very firm in rejecting this. And particularly when it involves children, oh my God, when it involves anybody who's not capable of giving consent, children or people who are wasted, it's, it's inexcusable, you know? Okay, well that that's all I got. I'll uh, keep listening. Okay. Thank you, thank you, sir. And yeah, I think you got my little email about the list, right? Okay. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Okay. okay. Thanks a lot. Mhm. Okay. So thanks for calling in, John. And if another, other people want to talk, you just press one when you call in seven six zero eight 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 five eight one seven. As I said, I got an article from a listener, Tom Jones, about men being raped and that the statistics about about men being assaulted and even what we would call rape are quite alarming. I think one of the things, um, you know, and the article does address this to a certain extent, is that a lot of people have this, you know, this idea, this, this assumption that if men are going to have erections that they're aroused and so therefore rape isn't possible with a man and everything, um, Maybe there are different reasons psychologically that it, even in a context of rape that that could happen, but they're also defining rape in this article as not necessarily just being, you know, normal penetrative sex with an erection and all this. It's not just that. So take a look at it. Um, what it shows you is that I, among other people, are ignorant of the prevalence of sexual assault on men. What I'm wondering is I'd want to see statistics that talk about sexual assault on kids versus adult males. Because, you know, again, just physically an adult male is somebody who is hard to overpower. And then if someone has actually been raped as an adult male, then I'm assuming it's another adult male who's doing it Unless I guess you've got a woman with a weapon or something that could happen as well. Those are the you know statistics I'd like to unpack more, but it is apparently quite prevalent and it's very disturbing. And unless somebody else has got a, a call and they want to come in, this is really the last that I want to talk about this before we re if, if we revisit it because there's new stuff that comes to light. They're saying that the next big wave of revelations in Hollywood is going to be predatory behavior on young boys. And this is the sort of thing that I think might be coming up. Um, okay, 46% of male victims reported a female perpetrator. Okay, so the, the extent to which there are female perpetrators is higher. And then we'd have to unpack it even more, what exactly is done by them and how um, 
but yeah, I, th- I think that preconceived notion that we all have that men can't be raped does need to be challenged to a certain extent. I mean, after all, if you think about this, the whole Weinstein thing, that he's going to sexually assault these women, if he is having a sexual response to a woman who doesn't want him, who he's forcing himself on, that's twisted in and of itself. And why couldn't somebody, you know, appear to have a sexual response in a situation where it's not, you know, a, com- a completely normal attraction and something that they that they really want? There are other, you know, sort of psychological problems that could create that. That's that's all I want to say about it, I guess. So, uh, thanks, Tom, for sending this. It, it is more prevalent than we thought. If you didn't realize the extent to which men were also the victim of sexual assault, then you should look at it. And as I said, as necessary, we might revisit. The danger of this is, you know, if we focus on it too much, is to, as I was talking about with John there on the phone, taking all the fun out of sex, right? You'd say, okay, well, we're going to think about sex all in this context of sexual assault and rape and all the danger to women and everything else. And as we've seen in the statistics, unfortunately, it is fairly prevalent, but there are things that people can do to reduce the risk of sexual assault happening and at the same time still be able to enjoy all of the great things about sex. There is a wonderful interview with Camille Paglia talking about Hugh Hefner's legacy. And I read it yesterday, and it's just its really excellent. She's just got such a value-oriented nature about her. Every time I've seen her interviews, I've always gotten something of, of value out of them. And I think I want to start looking at more of hers. I had a friend who sent me a couple extra interviews that I want to check out with her. I also want to find that one. It was, like I said, it was either with Ruben or Peterson. I think it was with Ruben about women's studies department, but they describe her as a pro sex feminist. So darn, you know, they should have done that to me on, um, on uh, Tucker Carlson's show, right on Fox pro sex feminist. That's awesome. But yeah, if you, if being a feminist includes being Paglia, maybe I, I need to reconsider, but, um, you know, they ask her, Basically, are you, you know, are you a fan of Hefner? And she said that yes. And and she was asked, for example, was Hugh Hefner a misogynist? And she says, absolutely not. She says, the central theme of my wing of pro-sex feminism is that all celebrations of the sexual human body are positive. Second wave feminism went off the rails when it was totally unable to deal with erotic imagery which has been a central feature of the entire history of Western art ever since Greek nudes. And she goes on to say that the way that Hefner actually portrays sex and and women in in Playboy isn't her particular taste. So it's really interesting. She really, she likes that he brought back, you know, this sort of pro-sex orientation and, and, you know, linked it to intellectualism and culture. She says, um, she says, Hefner brilliantly put sex into a continuum of appreciative response to jazz, to art, to ideas, to fine food, end quote. So she has this great appreciation for what he does. At the same time, she's not particularly fond of the bunny as, you know, the thing that's it's kind of Hefner's choice of, of how to portray women in his magazine. 
Um, and she goes into some psychology and stuff about a little psychologizing about it. And she says that her taste was more reflected by penthouse. But nonetheless, this pro-value-oriented uh, approach to sexuality, this is the thing that we need to focus on more. There is you know, such a beautiful realm of connection that people can miss out on if they focus on you know, every male is a potential predator and the danger and the everything, you know, you do what you can. As I said, don't get screwed up on alcohol um, or drugs or anything else, you know, prevent yourself from being roofied. If you can watch that people don't slip things in your drink, but at the same time, you have to go out and, and enjoy life as well. You can't be overly cautious all the time. Sometimes you have to be brave. You have to take risk if, you're going to be able to get the payoff. So excellent. Um, I'm, I'm trying to see if there's anything else in the, in the article that I wanted to um, tell you. Is there anything of lasting value in Hugh Hefner's legacy? She's asked. She says, we can see that what is completely vanished is what Hefner espoused and represented the art of seduction where a man behaving in a courtly, polite, and respectful manner pursues a woman and gives her the time and the grace and the space to make a decision of consent or not. Hefner's passing makes one remember an era when a man would ask a woman on a real date, you know, etc. Um, and then sex would emerge out of conversation and flirtation as a pleasurable mutual experience. So now, she says, when we look back at Hefner, we see a moment when there was a fleeting vision of a sophisticated sexuality that was integrated with all of our other aesthetic and sensory responses. So she really has a very positive and pro value. What are your thoughts about the Playboy bunny costume? So she says, she says, feminists of the period were irate about it. They felt that it reduced women to animals. It is true, it's animal imagery, but a bunny is a child's toy, for heaven's sake, she says. I think you could criticize the bunny image that Hefner created by saying it makes a woman juvenile and infantilizes her. But the type of animal here is a kind of key to Hefner's sensibility because a bunny is utterly harmless. Multiplying like bunnies, Hefner was making a strange kind of joke about the entire procreative process. She says, it seems to me like a defense formation Hefner turning his Puritan guilts into humor. It suggests that despite his bland smile, he may always have suffered from a deep anxiety about sex. Right, so she's, you know, projecting or, or uh, psychologizing a little bit there. Uh, but yeah, fabulous, interesting stuff. Take a look at it, and that's the danger. That's the danger of, of a campaign like this as well is to forget the wonderful potential of human relationships um another thing on that theme it just happened to come up yesterday i got a pair of levi's and i was posting about it and then right after i saw that a friend had posted a link to this saturday night live piece and if you haven't seen it yet it's quite funny again it's it's on the theme of removing sexuality from human life you know not looking at women as women and having women wear sexy jeans and have men wear the jeans that they like, uh, Levi's Wokes. So I had gotten these boot cut Levi's and I have this picture, this kind of arty picture I put out there with, with them. But 
I was thinking, God, you know, if I just held out a little longer, I could have gotten the Levi Wokes. Take a peek at that. That's fun. Trump is in the program notes. Trump is in the program notes. Uh, in the chat room, Josh was talking earlier about the fact maybe I'm aiming at an intellectual level with my tweets that can't be appreciated and everything else. And then I said that I w- and I was complaining about not getting retweets. Um, the retweeting thing is separate from the do people appreciate it. There are a number of people who even respond with laughter and don't even retweet it. It's this weird thing that people do. It's like they don't want to share their audience with you and stuff. It, it just happens um, on Twitter. And it, it's, yeah. So people don't appreciate it enough, I guess, to, to share it with their audience. And that's just life. So that's, like I said, you have to pick your shots. You have to decide where you can be most valuable. I still think there's a value in tweeting to Trump whenever and letting him know that not everybody is out there thinking he's the greatest person since sliced bread, because that's what matters to him, right? He just, what is he tweeting about this morning? Standing ovations. He got standing ovations from the senators. And so therefore I guess what he's got a blank check policy wise, because he got a standing ovation. It's ridiculous. So um, it's good to be defiant in the case of Trump in particular, because he has, he's been overbearing on Twitter. And do you blame somebody like a, a Jeff Flake for wanting to, to get out of there? And that's, that's where it brings me to this Jeff Flake thing. My whole, my, the whole danger of, of what I was doing where I'm just getting sick of, of Trump and, you know, you look and he's tweeting in the same way he's doing the same ad hominems to Flake that he was doing to Corker and stuff. It's like, you know, I'm looking for a value in this and I almost steer away from it just before I found it, which is in this flake, right? It's really nice to look and see the response that flake has given to Trump versus Corker. It's, it's principled versus Corker. And um, there's the whole stereotype about guys. And I don't know if it's really just guys, women do it too, but that guys, won't ever ask for directions. Um, And like, then they almost think they're going in the wrong direction and they start turning the wrong way just before they're there. Uh, That's what I was thinking about was this. It's like, I I was looking for a value in this Trump criticizing people and, you know, going through and and calling him on on his ad hominems and stuff. And and it's this, that there's an actual real substantive criticism. Uh, I've got two pieces in the program notes. One is, New York Times, they give you right and left react to Jeff Flake's denunciation of Trump, and that'll be worth digging into. But the thing that I spent more time on was Flake himself. He's got this piece, an op-ed piece in the Washington Post just called Enough, Enough. And he has a retirement speech that he gave on the floor of the Senate. And one of the beautiful things that he talked about in there is that while the anger and resentment towards government that we have right now, there's so many of us who have had anger and resentment, for example, at Obama's policies, that anger and resentment alone is not a governing philosophy 
is what he said. And that's in the speech excerpt that you see at the top of the enough. That's not in the op-ed piece itself. But yeah, so, so the whole point is, you know, you think you're going to be in favor of Trump because Trump is somehow the answer to Obama. But if you actually look at what Trump says and what he's doing, there is no governing philosophy there. There is a stoking and a feeding off of the anger and resentment, but there is not any kind of a principled approach. And if a human being is going to do something that is consistently pro-life or is consistently doing what they're supposed to do to be furthering the interests of the United States of America, if you're a politician, you have to act on principle. And Trump is just not. And I, you know, I, I love his references to principle, to conscience, to philosophy uh, as being important. Am I going to necessarily agree with him on every single thing? I don't know all of his policy positions, but I do like the fact that he is pro-immigration, and he also talks about being for limited government and free markets. These are all excellent things. I don't know how he is on, on abortion or other religiously toned issues, but kudos to him. And then he, then he talks about just the childish behavior. You, you, we, there's a lot of people who are going around saying, okay, well, there's POTUS, president of the United States, so let's come up with other things. And there's notice, narcissists of the United States of America. And, you know, can you come up with a new one? I wanted to put PCOTUS, which would be petulant child of the United States of America, just based on some of the tweets that I've seen in the past couple of days. But this is some of the behavior that he also calls out and just says that this is not normal. This is not the sort of thing that is presidential behavior. And in some cases, it's the sort of thing that could actually put us in danger. So let me read a little bit from his piece. He says, you know, again, this is Flake criticizing Trump. He says, how many more disgraceful public feuds with gold star families can we witness in silence before we ourselves are disgraced? How many more times will we see moral ambiguity in the face of shocking bigotry and shrug it off? How many more childish insults do we need to see hurled at a hostile foreign power before we acknowledge the senseless danger of it? How much more damage to our democracy and to the institutions of American liberty do we need to witness in silence before we count ourselves as complicit in the damage? And he says, you know, this is not normal. This particular administration is not normal, and he is concerned about becoming complicit in it. He said, I have been so worried about the state of our disunion that I recently wrote a book called Conscience of a Conservative, a Rejection of Destructive Politics and a Return to Principle. Now I'm interested in reading his book, of course. He says, I meant for the book to be a defense of principle at a time when principle is in a state of collapse. He says, in it, I trace the transformation of my party from a party of ideas to a party in thrall to a charismatic figure Peddling, excuse me, peddling empty populist slogans. Peddling empty populist slogans. Say that 12 times fast. He says, I tried to make the case for the sometimes excruciating work of arguing and compromise. And he said, you know, we want to go to the Senate, engage in that political process. He says, but we, you know, 
basically he learned that in the Senate, that's not what the Senate is about anymore, this kind of time-honored political process. He says, now what is required of us is uh, more than to put down our thoughts in writing. As our political culture seems every day to plumb new depths of indecency, we must stand up and speak out, especially those of us who hold elective office. To that end and to remove all considerations of what is normally considered to be safe politically, I have decided that my time in the Senate will end when my term ends in January 2019. He says, for the next 14 months, relieved of the strictures of politics, I will be guided only by the dictates of conscience. So I say kudos to him, but at the same time, it sounds like he is a much better type. Again, I don't necessarily expect to agree with him on everything, but someone who is dismayed at the lack of principle and a lack of arguments based on principle that's all of this politics what do we just learn we just learned that the clintons were the ones who bought the russian dossier on trump and you know that it's this whole it's like corruption after corruption after corruption and the cynicism that everybody does this the the worst type of people are in washington and here's potentially an example of one of the better types and he's saying that it's so bad for him that he feels in order to do a proper job, he has to leave. Now, is that necessarily bad? Maybe we want to have term limits and we want to have people who give themselves term limits. And if other people would do what he did, which is get involved in politics, but can you, for instance, get elected as a senator without making a whole lifetime career of politics that pollutes you to a certain extent? How can more good people come in, serve a term in which they are, you know, looking at considerations only of conscience and then get out. That's the problem too right now, right? So if if you've got this entrenched crony atmosphere in Washington, and it's apparent that we do, you've got Trump, I don't know what he's doing to these guys behind the scenes. On the surface, again, if you look on his Twitter feed, Everything that he says about Flake and Corker on the Twitter feed, it's all ad hominem. You shouldn't listen to Flake. You shouldn't listen to Corker because of something irrelevant, something that has nothing to do with the substance of what they are saying. That's ad hominem, some irrelevant characteristic about them. Maybe Flake can't win re-election. Maybe there would be no chance because he's just too good. Yaron Brook talks about the fact that he could never win an election in the United States as a politician at a serious level because of his ideas. Probably if I ran, I couldn't win because of my ideas. I don't know, you know. Um, So the mere fact that somebody can't win an election doesn't mean anything against the value of the argument that they've put forth. Um, Even the fact that somebody is wrong about the foreign policy with Iran in the case of Corker doesn't mean that he hasn't said something that's valuable with respect to the legislative process of getting a tax cut passed. And you haven't seen Trump address that. All that Trump's got, what has he got? He's got that stock market he keeps telling you about. But we don't know why the stock market is surging right now and that you can actually attribute it to Trump's policies. The best argument that I've seen that there's something about Trump is that people are saying, well, at least 
regulations aren't expanding at the rate that they did under Obama that, you know, businesses think that they're getting a little bit of a regulatory vacation under Trump. And maybe they are to a certain extent, but is that enough to explain the whole surge? Or is it that, for example, people think that because Trump is not principled, that when he does achieve some sort of a legislative victory, he's potentially going to make things worse than they already are. Is that the sort of thing that, that's going on? We don't know. Uh, but Flake, I don't blame you. Um, I sort of hope that what he does is he, that he starts a whole revolution among the better politicians that are in the Senate and in the House. And maybe that they urge him to reconsider what he's doing because what we need if we're ever going to get away from the Trumps and the Clintons and all of these crony unprincipled statists and just with despicable character is we're going to have to have better types like him in there. I wanted to, I wasn't able to get it into the program notes before the show started, but I saw in my, Twitter feed and I did retweet not that he needs my retweets but I retweeted for Ben Shapiro this piece that he's got over at National Review does character still matter and you know again there's this look at does it really matter that Trump you know for example um is showing bad character in so many ways. And Shapiro is arguing that, yes, it does actually matter. Um, He says, no culture can exist without a certain cultural capital, trust. And that trust exists only when there are certain spaces in which we can assume agreement without having to ask. Thomas Sowell writes that cohesive groups rich in cultural capital have certain advantages in business and in life. Quote, attitudes exist in societies that can be beneficial or harmful. Like-minded groups can easily minimize transactions costs, thereby lowering costs in economic terms. And this is you know, sort of thinking that you can have in any sort of association in life with other people. But there's a certain cultural capital trust that is gone in, in the Trump era. And, yeah, it is maybe making all of this politics cost a lot more. And that's one of the things that Flake is referring to. I was looking in Shapiro's Twitter feed for him to react explicitly to Flake, and I haven't seen that yet. If you guys see that, I'd be interested in in checking it out. So over at the blog, what do I have? Only got a couple minutes left, right? So uh, you guys, on Friday, I am not going to be here, and part of it is this pain, danger, enemies line of thinking. Doing three days a week here is not something that I'm finding or that I was finding necessarily productive in terms of the amount of time that I want to spend focusing on politics and and fighting the culture and stuff at the same time. I, you know, obviously I'm always going to do a day a week. I'm not going to ever drop this show. I'm going to do two days a week, at least, at least for a while and, and see how it goes. But I'm finding that some people in my audience are falling behind on shows that doing two or three days doesn't necessarily result in two or three uh, times the amount of, of listens to shows and things like that. So statistically, there's that as well. So when I look at that and I also look at um, 
sort of my own desire to immerse myself in all of this and to not get completely sick of it or burnt out of it. I, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be focusing on other things. I'm going to write. Um, I still haven't had a chance to do justice to the article that Rob Abiera sent last time, which is the one about China, that they want to start socially rating all the people because they have all the they have big data and in China, they don't even have a pretense of the Fourth Amendment that keeps them from merging all of this data into a big national database. Um, that being said, where are a lot of my efforts best spent on the topic of, of privacy? And I need to do more writing. I feel like writing is going to be something that's more valuable. This show, I love it. Like I said, right now I'm going to talk a little bit about Duran Duran. I like to bring in fun cultural references as well. Um, I, I have a good, I have a good time with this, and you know, try to support the good and analyze the bad to make sense of it. So I, I, I will be here, but I'm not going to be here on, on Fridays. I'm going to be here Mondays and Wednesdays uh, for for now. And so I'll talk to you guys next Monday. Check out Duran Duran. I put another one, uh, Lonely in Your Nightmare. That one just highlights the value of having a bass guitar. I was thinking this morning, I was listening to Jezebel's and I was thinking that my little Duran Duran kick has reminded me of the value that a bass player can bring sort of the, the atmosphere that's created by the, the baseline and lonely in your nightmare is, is notable. That whole album Rio is excellent in terms of bass and everything else, but yes, as good. I love the Jezebel's as much as I enjoy them the addition of a bass player would just add something. And I think you'll see that with the, with the two there, there's a, there's some sense of life in common there, but that extra instrument can make a difference. So in any event, enjoy those. I will talk to you guys next Monday. In the meantime, I will interact with y'all on social media and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk in the future about, you know, how is it that we focus on pain, danger and enemies What is necessary to fight them? Just think about that for yourself. We'll talk. Take care.